What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And I'm thrilled to have back with me today one of our frequent guests, Dr. Steven Freiberg, who frequent listeners will know is uh, now a practicing cardiac anesthesiologist and was one of our residents here. And not only that, but one of our chief residents and really has uh, remained a fantastic uh, person, physician, and of course, guest on this program. We are going to talk about an area he's taken some interest in, which is not cardiac anesthesia specific, but is about the contaminated airway. And I will point out that this episode is going to be featured at anesthesiologynews.com, as many episodes have been. So head over there, check it out. You can find a link to this episode there, as well as a bunch of other ones we've done. And of course, they've got a lot of other great content you can check out while you're there. Steven, welcome back to the show. Always excited to be back, Jed. I really do love doing podcasts with you and speaking about my favorite thing, or one of my favorite things in the world, which is anesthesiology. Absolutely. Well, so we are going to talk about the contaminated airway. What does that mean? So, indeed, I wanted, as you mentioned, wanted to move away from cardiac anesthesia for a bit, though I suppose this could potentially still be relevant in cardiac anesthesia, and focus a bit on another one of my favorite subjects, which is airway management. And specifically, as you alluded to, today we'll talk about the contaminated airway. And while the terminology makes me think of you know, biohazard tape and intubating while wearing a hazmat suit and all this cool sci-fi imagery. All it really refers to is stuff in the airway, meaning blood, vomit, debris, etc. Yeah, a super key, because while this may not happen every day, when it does happen, man, it is incredibly challenging. So, you know, what got you interested in this? What made you decide this is something that we should talk about? Well, so I wanted to talk specifically about this because I was involved in the care of a patient recently in which securing the area was made extremely difficult, not only because of significant airway edema, but also because of just copious, never-ending, pink, frothy fluid just spewing out of the nose and mouth, likely, likely related to significant pulmonary edema. And securing her airway took multiple attempts. It was ultimately done with two attendings performing a combined video laryngoscopy and fiber optic technique. And while we were able to mass ventilate effectively in between attempts, it wasn't a circumstance in which we really wanted to be positive pressure mass ventilating. Yeah. And while we, this patient had a good outcome, 
it got me thinking about, and I wanted to research more in detail how to better manage this sort of scenario. Yeah, I, that's great. And I'm really excited to hear more about what you found because I think often what we do in these situations is just flail. We just try to grab anything or anything we can think of, and there's not necessarily any guide to what we're doing. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what you found. Exactly. And then, as, as you mentioned, flail is a unfortunate per, but perhaps accurate description. And before I could even really delve into more research in the topic, the following evening, immediately prior to induction, a patient vomited all over my shoes, which was agreed upon by the surrounding staff that was probably less than two-hour-old Chipotle. Oh. And then while I was not enamored with the situation or the smell, I was actually pretty thrilled that the patient was vomiting before induction because all I could think of what a nightmare this would have been had I needed to secure an airway through that. Absolutely. So, you know, I can't claim any true particular expertise in the topic. I'm not widely published or by any means considered an authority. But the incidents that I just described really got me thinking, how can we maybe make a situation like this less of a flail? And so I dove into some of the relevant literature and found some other folks who've addressed the topic, and it opened my eyes to new ways of thinking about the airway management, along with some new tools and strategies, and I just really wanted to share what I found. That's awesome. So, you know, when you think um, about this, as I said, we often don't don't have a lot of expertise, even those of us in anesthesia who, you know, are the airway experts. Why do you think that is? Why isn't there a lot of training or specific um, expertise in this topic for these scenarios? I think that large volume regurgitation or contamination is often thought of as an uncommon airway problem, especially amongst we anesthesia providers where most, though obviously not all of our patients, are appropriately NPO. So it's mostly encountered in the pre-hospital setting, the emergency department, or the ICU, and determining you know, how your institution functions or your particular scope of practice, you might not have a lot of involvement in those sort of scenarios. And I think it's sufficiently rare that it lacks attention or a strategy discussion or technical practice in anesthesia training. But despite its rarity, it turns out I'm not the only person who finds this particular circumstance challenging. In an observational study of 906 consecutive patients intubated with a video laryngoscope in a single academic center ICU between January of 2012 and 2016, the top two determinants of first attempt failure at tracheal intubation with video laryngoscopy were the presence of blood in the airway, followed by airway edema. And similarly, running into a contaminated airway probably isn't so uncommon, especially for these non-elective intubations. A prospective observational study from resuscitation in 2015 showed an incidence of regurgitation for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients of 25% before arrival and 7% at the time of hospital intubation. So again, in this pre-hospital or sort of non-OR setting is probably not as uncommon as we think. Yeah, that sounds much more common than I would have thought. 25% uh, is, is impressive. And certainly, though we may not be seeing all of those, even a small fraction is something we want to know how to manage. So why do you think our training is either lacking or flawed in relation to the contaminated airway, um, you know, and what can we do differently? So what I think has sort of been targeted as a point of critique or contention in some of the literature for our education airway management, it's very ventilation focused. We're taught from day one of anesthesia training to think and look out for predictors of dis difficult mass ventilation and difficult intubation. And just because it's always useful to review, predictors of difficult mass ventilation include the presence of a beard, obstructive sleep apnea or known snoring, 
lack of teeth, a BMI greater than 26, and age greater than 55, and where predictors of difficult intubation include infections of the oropharynx and neck, previous surgery or radiation therapy to the head and neck, problems with mouth opening, problems with neck mobility, poor or difficult dentition, pregnancy, craniofacial syndromes, burns, and airway trauma. Great. But even great that Thank you. List, oh, absolutely. But even in that extensive list, what almost all those risk factors have in common is that they primarily characterize distortions in the patient's airway anatomy and or they limit our ability to modify or manipulate the patient's anatomy into favorable intubating conditions. Nothing is actually mentioned about the airway contamination itself on that very sort of commonly cited list. And even in a review in anesthesiology from 2016, discussing the management of the traumatized airway in which they outline many potential scenarios of airway badness, badness, excuse me, they somewhat mention in a cursory fashion the need to remove blood, teeth, and debris from the airway. That's essentially all that's said about it. And then furthermore, the ASA difficult airway algorithm that we all know and love, as I mentioned, is very much ventilation-centered. It's all about adequately oxygenating and ventilating the patient and therefore doesn't necessarily describe optimal strategies for managing an airway that's contaminated. So, for example, in a patient whose airway is contaminated and the patient is obtunded or otherwise not able to effectively protect their airway, the quote-unquote awakening option of the patient is really not a feasible option. And while the other commonly targeted arm of the pathway is placing a supraglottic airway like a laryngeal mask airway, that might be reasonable or necessary, especially in the face of life-threatening hypoxia, but it doesn't, as we know, protect from aspiration, nor would guarantee a successful conduit to a definitive secured airway or intubation if the airway is contaminated. And the other problem that further compounds the difficulty in managing the contaminated airway is that all or many of the tools that we have in our arsenal for managing the difficult airway, such as a video laryngoscope or a fiber optic scope, are once again largely designed to navigate anatomical problems. And also, they're dependent on functional optics. And as anyone who's dealt with this before, once your lens is dirty, you're effectively hosed and have to remove your device, clean it, and then maybe try again. Yeah, I think that's that's a huge point is that, you know, especially if the airway is really full of debris, uh, you may, it may not even help to do that, right? You may pull it out, clean it, put it back in, and it immediately gets fogged or clouded up or covered in blood again. So it can be really difficult to rely on video um, capability in these situations. So what do we do now? I mean, we, we've said that we don't really have great uh, training or preparation for this. So what is it that we're doing? Right. So we've got a patient in extremis. Our beloved algorithm may not really help us that much and the tools and the toys that we're so great at using might be rendered obsolete. So I wanted to break this down and think about some techniques that might assist us in managing the airway in these challenging scenarios. So firstly, though, we have to take a moment and think about suction. Because we're all vigilant and dedicated providers, whenever we perform an intubation, especially one that might that we might know has a, is contaminated or has a high risk of contamination, we have working suction ready. And the form that I imagine that usually takes is either with a Yankauer suction handle or some slight modification for that to that. But for an interesting bit of medical history, the Yankauer suction catheter was designed by Sidney Yankauer around 1907 
to facilitate clearing the surgical field during tonsillectomy. And the whole point was the tip of the catheter has small holes to allow removal and gentle removal of blood without traumatizing the delicate tissue or dislodging clot. So while that sounds like an optimal device for, indeed, dealing with surgery in the airway, it doesn't sound like it'd be particularly useful when we're trying to clear and clean and decontaminate the airway. And that's essentially been proven, that it fails to manage large volume regurgitation well. The flow rate, excuse me, the flow rate has been proven to be lower than large bore suction catheters, and the small holes are easily clogged with debris. And even worse, some designs of the Yankara suction catheters have a safety vent hole on the side, which effectively prevent the catheter from suctioning too hard, a nice safety feature, again, for surgical use. But this might be a design flaw with regards to intubation because the vent hole has to be occluded by the operator's finger to achieve optimal suctioning. And simulation has showed often providers don't do that well, and that can thereby extend an intubation procedure. So, so Stephen, it sounds like this Yankauer, which is ubiquitous, right, of what we, we use, I mean, certainly everywhere I've been, this is really something that was designed for something else, and we've just kind of taken it because it's easy and accessible, but it sounds like it's not really designed for what we use it for. Exactly. So the ideal suction tool for intubations is debatable, but it does seem, as you mentioned, that Yankauer might be a poor choice. And one could argue, and some do argue, that the persistent use of the Yankauer suction catheter for airway management really represents a profession-wide, systems-wide failure in our ability to manage these large volume regurgitation. So this suggests the need for a larger bore suction catheter. And now I have zero conflicts of interest to declare. I received no royalties whatsoever. But some of the commercially available large bore suction catheters include the SSCOR High-D Big Stick, is what it's called, or the ConMed Big Yank, and also the Ducanto Suction Catheter. And so if a large bore suction catheter doesn't become standard anesthesia equipment, perhaps at a minimum, it might be prudent to add them to, you know, difficult airway carts or think of them as an important tool to have present when managing a difficult airway. Yeah, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And I told you before we started recording about a relatively recent incident I had with a code and a patient who was just spewing blood um, out of the mouth to the point into an extreme where, you know, there was no, the, the Yankauer was not helping. So something else really uh, is is needed in these circumstances. But, you know, let's say that we uh, don't have one of these large bore um, big stick catheters. What, uh, what can we do? So there are some uh, interesting MacGyver-esque uh, workarounds that I've seen described in the literature. Important to keep in mind, none of these are FDA approved for, for the use in this sense, but it perhaps is useful in an emergency or a pinch. One of the things I actually saw described was to connect an ET tube and a tracheal tube to a swivel adapter and then following a connected to a meconium aspirator. Hmm. Another one described putting an ET suction catheter through the Murphy's eye hole of your endotracheal tube, which would allow for constant suction while sort of using the endotracheal tube as a wand. Another thing you can do is just to tape an endotracheal tube stilet to the suction tubing itself, which is larger bore and gives you a little bit more control. So perhaps those are some options to achieve uh, more effective suction in in an emergency. Interesting. So the, the stylet option, you're saying basically you can curve your stylet, which allows you to shape the curve of your suction tubing, and that might be more useful than just sticking the large bore tubing in the airway. Uh, exactly. 
Okay, great. So, all right, suction is obviously key. And if you need suction and you don't have it, nothing else may matter. So I think that makes a ton of sense to start with. So let's say we've optimized our suction either because we've got a, you know, a, a suction catheter that was built for this, like you mentioned some of them um, earlier, or because we've done uh, one of these kind of uh, MacGyver-esque techniques. Uh, what else do we want to keep in mind when securing the difficult contaminated, air, contaminated airway? So just a couple techniques that I thought could be useful and advantageous and I hadn't necessarily thought of before was firstly in the presence of non-solid contamination. So obviously this describing fluid like blood or pulmonary edema, even in the absence of an adequate McCormick-Lehane view, one thing to try is to just go where the bubbles are. Air should be coming from the trachea, technically not the esophagus. This is no means a slam dunk technique, but it might just be something to try and something I hadn't thought about when sort of all else fails and you got to shoot for something. Absolutely. Another strategy is actually to use, again, if you have a large bore suction catheter to complete the intubation being a Selgender technique. So you actually insert your suction catheter through the vocal cords because sometimes the issue is you're able to suction effectively with intermittent suction, but as soon as you put your suction down, you lose your view. So you actually take that catheter, insert it through the vocal cords, and then an airway exchange catheter can be inserted through that suction tubing. The suction catheter is removed, and the endotracheal tube is advanced over the exchange catheter. Now, that's really interesting. So let me ask you about that. So obviously, if you're, you, if you're hooked up to suction and you put your large-bore suction tubing in the trachea, and then you want to put a bougie through that, you have to cut it, right? So you're going to have to cut off the the uh, superior end somewhere so that you can then put your bougie through it, right? Correct. Either an annuated end or using a thinner flexible suction catheter, like I believe the Cook Airway Exchange catheter, um, or an Aintree catheter would probably be too large diameter to, to fit through one of these. But typically, the thinner flexible airway exchange catheters would be useful in this sense, or potentially a, a modified bougie. Right. Interesting. And so it doesn't matter. So you'll cut your tubing. It won't matter that you now have lost your suction because you're already in the airway. And then you're going to put your exchange catheter or your bougie or whatever it is through that now cut off suction and then take the suction tubing out and put your airway in. Correct. Okay. That's really interesting. All right. Are, are there other things to keep in mind? Absolutely. So another strategy that I thought was an interesting take is let's say by whatever method you attempted to intubate, you accomplished an esophageal intubation. And obviously this did nothing to improve our, to protect our airway or improve our gas exchange, but it might actually be beneficial to leave the endotracheal tube in the esophagus. Normally I think our instinct is it's not in the trachea, take it out. But by leaving it in place, you can halt or maybe even reduce the amount of contamination if the source is from the stomach um, by inflating your endotracheal balloon and sort of sealing off the esophagus in that way. And also if you have something in the orifice that you know is the esophagus, with the exceptions of extremely strange airway anatomy, if you attempt intubation again, you now know the trachea is the other hole. Right. And in fact, one thing that was described, if you continue to advance the endotracheal tube further into the esophagus so that the end of the tube is flush with the mouth, you can actually tape the endotracheal tube over and then continue to mass ventilate if the patient is hypoxic and an extremist, and this might help reduce the insufflation of the stomach now that you've kind of created uh, at least a partial seal off of the esophagus. Yeah, I love this technique. And actually, in the code I was telling you about, this is what we did, and not advancing it all the way. We didn't have to mask ventilate. 
but but purposely putting an endotracheal tube in the esophagus, which is where the blood in this case was coming from, blowing up the balloon, and then the blood continued to come out of the endotracheal tube, which we just deflected over to the side of the of the bed, and that allowed us to then have a cleaner and more straightforward airway to intubate, and that worked. So I think this is a great technique. I had not thought about um, if you needed to mask ventilate the fact that you could advance. Far, than, far enough that you could actually mask over it. But I love that. That's actually a really neat uh, thing you could do if you weren't immediately able to get the airway. I thought that was really interesting as well. And then probably the technique best described for managing the contaminated airway, and it's gained a lot of attention, especially in the foam ed community, is by Dr. Jim Ducanto. It's called the SALAD technique, standing for Suction-Assisted Laryngoscopy and Airway Decontamination. Essentially what it involves is leading your laryngoscope or video laryngoscope with your suction device, which is typically described with his proprietary device, the Ducanto suction catheter, a large bore suction catheter. And then in a situation of continued airway soilage or contamination, you actually place the suction catheter to the left of the laryngoscope, as opposed to what we typically do, which is holding it in our right hand, dropping it, and then trying to use our right hand to, to intubate you actually place it to the left of the laryngoscope, keeping it in place in sort of the same shape as the laryngoscope, allowing for continued suction, and then your right hand is now free to intubate the trachea. And then an additional step is that once you've successfully intubated the trachea, because you have your suction immediately available, you can disconnect your suction source from the suction catheter and then use an ET suction to immediately suction the endotracheal tube before providing positive pressure ventilation. And an important point that Dr. Ducanto emphasizes is the need for practice and simulation. And he actually has designed an airway mannequin that simulates constant emesis so that providers can practice his exact technique. And again, I have no disclosures or financial interest with the Ducanto products. um, And I've included a video in the show notes that demonstrates this technique. But what I think the takeaway is is we've learned how valuable simulation is in medical training and that maybe in some way we should be incorporating this type of airway challenge into our airway management training. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So, you know, it it is, again, you're only going to see these very occasionally. And so if you, even going over this stuff in your mind, listening to this episode, you have some ideas, but practicing them makes a ton of sense. And I would argue that, you know, you can probably take a regular mannequin and uh, even if you don't have the constant emesis capability, you know, you can probably have some way of whether it's pouring some saline in there or, you know, some red colored saline, something to at least give you some amount of practice, which makes a ton of sense so that when this happens, you've had some experience with it. Absolutely. So those are some great points, really important things I think people can keep in mind in practice. Anything else you want to leave people with today, Stephen? No, I think that's really all I've got. I kept it shorter than usual for today. The takeaways being to always preemptively identify patients that are at risk for contamination and or aspiration, as we typically do. If so, be mindful of the airway equipment you have available, which might therefore be wise to include a better type of large bore suction device to keep some of these new techniques in mind in addition to the traditional difficult airway pathway and absolutely practice these techniques whenever able. So I hope everyone learned a little something, and maybe I opened your eyes to some new techniques and strategies to a very specific airway problem. Awesome. Stephen, this is great, really high yield, and I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. 
All right. That was fantastic. Really great to have Stephen back on the show. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment and everyone can learn from what you have to say. Let us know. Are there other techniques that you've used to handle these kind of contaminated airways? We can all learn from your experience as well. Thank you so much. Also, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, we really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. You can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and leave a donation anytime you would like. Thank you so much to all of you who are already donors or patrons. We really appreciate it. Of course, a big shout-out to Brian Park for the outlines he does for some of the shows. And thank you to all of you for listening and for your thoughtful emails and comments. It makes a big difference. We really enjoy getting them. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Stephen Freiberg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.